You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Discipleship is when we move from imitating or from just watching to actually imitating. Even the word disciple as we use it may not be a common word we say all the time, but here's what it comes down to be. Disciple literally means a student. It means a learner. It implies nothing more and nothing less than somebody who's willing to say, teach me so that I may follow. That's the heart of a disciple. And what we learn today in recognizing these things together is I want you to think about this thing for a minute. That that's what I want to preach about. I want us to get into this very subject, discipleship, will change your life. And it will change and transform your life. Pastor Capace is in the midst of launching an envision that is coming to Gospel Light more and more in the year 2021 as really a year of discipleship in which we go formally and intentionally into what does it really look like, according to the Bible, to actually be a disciple and make disciples. This last Thursday night, I had the privilege to rub shoulders, sit alongside 12 other brothers in Christ in our church family. And there are 13 guys that are taking a couple of other guys. And so there's around 40 men right now as we speak that are on the cusp and the verge of going into making disciples at Gospel Light. It's incredible. Can't wait for that testimony to ring out more and more to the church. And there are more disciples on the way. Let me say this to you as well. Right now, one of the greatest fallacies that we've got to fight against is thinking somehow that discipleship doesn't fit maybe into our life in some kind of way. What I want you to think about with me is that to experience the truest sense of biblical discipleship, what we've got to first of all do is we've got to draw a line in the sand and define really what is discipleship versus misconceptions of what it actually is not. Jesus, our Lord, said this statement in John chapter 8. I want you to give attention to this here on your screen. Here's what Christ said. He said, as, as Jesus or he was saying these things, many believed in him. A.K.A. salvation. Got saved, believed. Then he says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him or believed him, if you continue in my word... You really are my disciples. And he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. According to Christ, there is a distinction drawn that's really undeniable. There are those who believe upon Christ, and then there are those who begin to follow Christ as disciples of Christ. To believe is to follow. It never is to believe and then not follow. It's always biblically to believe Christ is now to follow him as a disciple. But see, what we've got to realize today and really make a connection here is that there is a difference between salvation and discipleship. While the two are interconnected without question, they are functionally entirely different. And when we say they are entirely different, Unfortunately, many believers think somehow 
they are synonymous, but they're absolutely not. The Bible gives us a, a very clear claim on this. And what I want you to know in this moment is that until you and I can consciously and literally with all intentionality draw out the difference, until we can make the difference in the two things in our own personal life, we will be attempting to live the Christian life without the other side of the coin, and that is discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a very good observation about this, and he made the statement here, Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ. Jesus so expects that after you become a Christian, you become a disciple. He so expects that to be the norm that to think otherwise would be fallacy. In fact, as we really think about that for you and I, we are part of the Lord Jesus Christ church. And for the church of the Lord Jesus, to which we belong, this would be just as unthinkable to have Christianity without discipleship as it would be to have a car with no wheels. As it would be to have a coach without a team. To have an entire hospital, but have no patients. Y'all even to have peanut butter without jelly, amen? I mean, that's a crisis for some folks. So what we've got to think about is in this moment, what do we do with this? How does this become believed? Because God forbid that it's all about just going to church and going home, and there's really no discipleship. Well, what is this? A guy named Rick Flounders made a good observation about the difference between salvation and discipleship. And it looks something like this. Let me give you six quick differences between salvation and discipleship. Number one, Christ's invitation to salvation in the Bible is come unto me. But it's called a discipleship is come after me. There's a difference between salvation and discipleship. Number two, salvation is about the cross of Christ. But, sal but discipleship is about carrying your own cross and following after Christ. There's a difference between salvation and discipleship. Number three, at salvation you receive the gift of eternal life. But in discipleship, you end up giving a gift. And that gift is your own life. Laid down selflessly to follow after Christ. There's a difference between salvation and discipleship. Number four, the salvation decision must be made only one time. But in discipleship, the decision must be made every day you live until Christ calls you home. There is no retirement. There is no vacation from being a disciple. Number five, salvation is an eternal guarantee. But discipleship is always in danger of delayed, apathetic disobedience. That's why, yet again, there's a decision and a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. They're not the same. Number six, last of all, eternal life is the result of salvation. You get to die and go to heaven. But eternal rewards are the result of genuine discipleship, according to Christ. What we can conclude even right now 
if we will go ahead and just be honest as our spirit bears witness, right here in the presence of our Lord, let's just go ahead and call it what it is by its first name. Essentially, being a Christian is awesome when you get saved by Jesus. But there is placed upon every person who professes Christ that believing in Him is great. But there is this expectation to actually die to self and begin to follow Him. Like, begin to live for Him. Like, take Christ in as Christ takes you where He wants you to go and do what you want you to do. You lose your own life. You deny your own rights. And you lay those down to say, Jesus, you own me. I'm your disciple. What are we going to do now? What you and I have got to realize is that unfortunately many of us sometimes get trapped in this. Many times believers will get trapped and stuck in this casual Christianity coasting on through, genuinely have been saved. Like really know Christ, have been saved, are Christians. But are stuck in this baby Christian form of just not growing in the likeness of Christ. As we heard Pastor Capace preach the series recently, amazing. And when that happens, I believe wholeheartedly is that what happens is that the reason why somebody does not begin to progress in sanctification and grow more in the likeness of Christ is because they are saved by Christ, but they are somehow not being discipled. They are the person that gets saved, they get baptized, and they sit on a pew or chair, and they just are casually coasting, and they are needing someone to come alongside them to say, listen, I don't know all the things I am to know about Christ. I, am lo- I, I have been lost, but I've been saved. But what do I do now to grow? How do I get to know the God that saved me? That's where the church has got a mandate to make disciples. And that's what every born-again Christian deserves, is to be discipled. So when it comes down to you and I, if we're missing this in our walk with Christ, then let me say to you today that the picture of discipleship Versus salvation really has a good example in the Bible because the guy by the name of the Apostle Paul, he got saved by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He didn't know what was going to happen that day, but he got saved. Christ changed his life. But then we read a little further into the Bible, and the same guy who became a Christian now is looking and living like a disciple. Salvation and discipleship are different. How do we know? Because the Bible says he began to make disciples and he began to multiply in discipleship and planting of establishing local churches. God used him until one day he would cross paths with a guy by the name of Timothy. As Paul would take the gospel to all over the area outside of Jerusalem and beyond, we would find that his life would intersect at a town by the name of Lystra. Lystra in the year AD 46, was a colony of the Roman Empire as Alexander the Great's empire was spreading and dominating from a military point all over the region. Even 700 miles northwest of Jerusalem is this town called Lystra. Paul had traveled so far as to get the gospel all the way up there. That's like going from Hot Springs to Tallahassee, Florida. That's how far the gospel had begun to spread. 
And so when he intersects his life in Lystra, he comes across a guy named Timothy and his mom, Eunice. He leads them both to Christ. They become Christians. And then we find out that God blessed that relationship. And before you knew it, Timothy now was becoming a disciple of the Apostle Paul. And Paul would begin to take Timothy on missionary journeys with him. He would travel with him to preach the gospel. He was learning from a mentor. And Paul was raising him up until one day, Paul would say, Timothy, it's time. When I was on a missionary journey, I planted a church in a city called Ephesus. That church is doing well. In fact, it's growing. In fact, there are multi-campuses now. Timothy, I'm going to pass the baton on to you. And I need you to go. And I need you to oversee the work that God's doing at the city of Ephesus and the church there. And he did. So when you and I begin to calculate exactly how did all this happen, here's what we find out. Right here in our Bible, we have two letters written from the Apostle Paul to a young man by the name of Timothy. And Timothy gets these letters, and Paul is using this time to give us a front row seat of spirit-inspired dialogue between Paul and Timothy. And in that dialogue, Paul is discipling Timothy to help him learn what is it going to mean for you to oversee the work at Ephesus, to pastor the church, and to basically make sure that we're eliminating false doctrine and addressing it, and we are replacing it with some good sound doctrine. Timothy, this is what I'm going to need you to do. And he does it. And what we find in these verses is that between 1 and 2 Timothy, there are 10 chapters. And in the 10 chapters, right at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 1, I want you to turn your attention to read these verses with me. And let's pay especially attention to verse 5. Because verse 5 is what is used throughout the next 10 chapters. It's powerful. Here's what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God and our, our God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine. Or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have deviated from these and they've turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying. Or what they are insisting on. Seems to be what Paul is addressing to Timothy. He says, hey man, we got a problem. And you're the man that's going to go and take care of it. And Timothy, I know you're young, but it's time to get started. And I'm going to take care of this because we got false doctrine going around Ephesus. we got Judaism mixing in with Christianity. And they're trying to mix the two together. Some folks may be even arguing over whether Adam and Eve had a belly button. Amen? There's all kinds of stuff that they're talking about. So what they're trying to figure out is, he's saying to Timothy, I need you to make sure you go straighten out and get right doctrine in place of that, and I'm going to give you what you need. 
And what he begins to do in verse 5, he says, here's the problem that's going on all around the text. It's false doctrine, but verse 5 is, Timothy, this is what I need you to do. The goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. In verse 5, we begin to get the ingredients for what discipleship is going to look like between Paul and Timothy. And what you and I would do well to do right now is to take the inspiration of Scripture and recognize that as Paul gives Timothy a very good practical example of what discipling is going to look like to make sure that things are done right, you and I right now would do well if we say, you know what, I want to borrow and, and I want to imply the fact that this is going to look great in my life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to put into practice the things that a disciple looks like. And what I want to give us right now is really just six different practices that we actually need for some life-changing discipleship. And what it begins with is the very beginning of that is what Paul said as he made statement here. He said the goal of our instruction is love. It comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So everyone catch this. The very beginning point that Paul is identifying is that of instruction. Timothy, the goal of our instruction. What is instruction? The instruction is the Word of God brought down from Christ to the apostles to the early church. He says, Timothy, we got to go back and we've got to recognize why there's a, the reason why there's false doctrine going on in Ephesus is because we need to get back to right doctrine. And it's down to the very Word of God. Let me tell you, the disciple of Jesus, when we really practice biblical discipleship, when we move from salvation into actually be the disciple of Christ, here's where it starts. You ready? It starts when we go ahead and we practice the practice of authority as a disciple of Christ. And you might say, what do I mean by authority? What I mean by authority is simply this. We submit ourselves to Scripture to replace the lost way of thinking that we've inherited in our sinful life and condition. That's what we do. That's it. Think about this, y'all. When you become a Christian, you bring to the cross of Christ... I bring to the cross of Christ everything I have ever learned the wrong way in life. I've developed a life philosophy, convictions. I've called things that are wrong good. Because in my lost way of thinking, I thought everything was fine. And I lived my life like a lost man. But when you come to Christ and you get saved, you get a regenerated heart. But you don't have a renewed mind yet. Our mind is still trapped in all the junk that we brought to Christ. So we got to learn to replace that and renew that so we begin a process of sanctification so we can look more like the Christ. That's our goal. So Timothy, you're going to have to start back at instruction. A disciple will say, Jesus, I spent all my lost life doing all the talking. I'm going to shut my mouth now so I can listen. You speak. You speak into my mind, my heart. You teach me by your word. And therefore, that submission to Scripture is what is needed. 
because we want to follow the leadership of Christ. Only one needs to be leading and only one needs to follow. The Christian life, as David McGee says, it doesn't really work because we're such great followers. It really works because Christ is such a great leader. And he's our shepherd, our great shepherd, and we follow him in that manner. The first thing that we need to remember and lay down is a simple aspect is that when we have the practice of authority in our life, we've got a foundation. When we are practicing, submitting ourselves to say, okay, I've been saved by Christ, but as I want to be a disciple of Jesus, truly a biblical disciple, I'm going to have to let the Word of God transform and take over my life. So that's the beginning, which leads to practice number two. What does he say? Timothy, the goal of our instruction is... So the instruction of the Word of God, while we place ourselves under authority of Scripture, the goal begins to happen. And that's the practice of aim. How many of you know it's important to know what you're aiming for in life or in anything, in anything you do? And how many of you also know if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time? Amen? So you got to have some direction. And what we've got to have is this reality right here. The goal, Timothy. The goal is becoming like Jesus, not just belonging to him. See, what happens when you get saved, salvation is satisfied at just saying, I belong to Christ. I'm going to heaven. He's mine and I'm his. Discipleship says, I'm glad to belong, but I want to become like him. I want my life to count for him in this way, and in this way I want him glorified. Becoming like him is the goal at hand. I like the way Dallas Willard said it. He said, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Wow. When you and I begin to take it to heart in such a way that we say, Lord, I submit myself to the scriptures. Instruction from Christ, his counsel, his way. That's what fills my heart, taking all the junk out that I brought to Christ when I got saved. My mind is changing, my heart, my convictions. I'm beginning to think different and act different and speak different because Christ is producing this in me, praise God. And then I'm becoming more like him. And in that way, he is getting lifted up in my life. I love, I love the way he lays out the scripture in that manner. In 1980, a man was in Rwanda, Central Africa, became a follower of Christ. Unapologetically, he lived for Jesus in the front of all his tribesmen. Until one day, the villagers came to him among the chiefs and they said, Listen, Christianity is not for us in our village. You need to renounce your faith in Christ. Or it's not that we will remove you, we will kill you. The man continued and it would be the one day... That he actually was called out in front of everybody. And had the opportunity, he could have denied Jesus. But instead, he confessed him. And they killed him on the spot. In front of all his family in 1980 in Rwanda. When his family would gather his belongings. They would come across this journal. And they looked at the journal and they realized that he had just written this certain journal entry the night before he was, he, he was martyred, he called it the Fellowship of the Unashamed, entitling his journal entry. And here's what he said, quoted directly from his actual journal. He said, the die has been cast. 
I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and I'm done with low living, sight walking, small planet, smooth knees and colorless dreams. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or even delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until heaven returns, give until I drop, preach until everybody knows, and work until Jesus comes. He died the next day. But you know why? It's because he made up his mind to say, I have been saved by the Lord Jesus, but I now am following him until he calls me home. To God be the glory. When you and I truly begin to move in that direction, we find ourselves saying, I'm not content to just go to church and go home. I'm not content to put on a show. I'm not content to just feel good about my spirituality. I am rather discontent until I am dying to myself, living under Christ, and loving every minute of it. Because I want Jesus, the hero of my life at the end of the day, not me. Number three. The practice, Timothy, is the goal of our instruction is love. Timothy, we got to get this love thing right. Love. It's the practice of adoration. You know why? Because the more we love him, the more we serve him. The word love is that agape word of the language that's that selfless, sacrificial love. The same love of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It's not love that is friendly and nice and kind or erotic. It's the Greek basis of that agape love. It is, Timothy, the goal of our instruction, the aim of where we're going as we submit to the Word of God and we practice authority. And as we have the aim of becoming like Jesus, now we are doing this, Timothy, out of adoration. It's because we love Jesus, not for what He can do for us like a genie in a bottle. We love Him for who He is, not for what He can do. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus, our Lord, even made it clear when we read in the scriptures about the commands of Christ. Listen to this. In 2 John 6, the Bible says, And this is love that we walk according to his commands. This is love that we walk according to his commands. Now notice this. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. Love commands. And then he says in John 15, 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Love and commands. Wow. So what is this saying? It's all coming back full circle. It's a reminder that in the bigger picture of all of this, is that when a disciple of the Lord Jesus 
shuts their mouth so God can speak and the quietness of their soul is now filled with his voice. It is in those moments that they say, Lord, flood me, feed me. You're in charge. You are the authority. Your words speaking and washing over my darkened mind. God, I'm becoming more like Christ because that's my aim. And Lord, it's because I love you. I cannot say I love Jesus and not love his commands. It's biblically and theologically impossible. For somebody saying, I want the benefit of heaven, but I don't want to carry a cross to the life, doesn't make sense. But for the follower of Jesus that says, I got saved, and now my life is indebted to the living Christ, and I owe him all that I am, so Lord, you speak. I'm listening because you own everything I am. My days count for you and for eternity and no one else. Hallelujah. Adoration. When the practice of authorities in the Christian life with the practice of the aim, and we know we're becoming more like Christ, it is the practice then of adoration which says this to Timothy. It leads to the practice of, number four, avoidance. And here's why I am saying that. Notice in your notes you will find, and even on the screen, is this statement. As we taste the things of God, we lose appetite for the taste of sin. Mm. Think about that. Hey, Timothy, they're doing this, and, and I'm in Macedonia, you're in Ephesus, and they're doing all this other stuff, and they're teaching this false doctrine. Timothy, that may be what they're doing, but here's what we're doing. We got a goal. We have an aim. We've got the instruction of false or of true doctrine. Timothy, the goal is to give this away and to operate in this discipleship is out of love, but beware. The love is guided and governed by a heart that is pure. See, what happens if we start living for Jesus and loving on Jesus, but we've got our priorities out of whack? We start convincing ourselves that we're being doers of the word and not hearers only, and we start deceiving ourselves. We start coming up with a version of the Christian life that's more counterfeit than it is authentic. And before we know it, we begin offering to Jesus the noise of our songs, the noise of our life, the whatever you want to call it. And before you know it, we're not really making disciples, we're really just making excuses. And then before we know it, everything starts getting out of whack, and it's all coming down to this fact. When you give Christ, Timothy, when you're going to give this love away out of adoring Christ, do it from a pure heart. The very command of Jesus to the follower of Christ, the greatest command, what did he say? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. This is the capacity with which we give back to him to love him. So what happens in the Christian life, if the Christian life becomes a big mix-up, to where the person says, I love Jesus and I want to follow him and I'm trying. And they just keep having to choose between the world and Christ. The purity of the heart is getting shipwrecked. There's got to be a choice. There's got to be a dying to self. There's got to be a want that says, I want you, Jesus, more than I want pleasure. I want you more than I want popularity. John Piper made a statement and it's so, so well done. And here's what he said. You will never defeat temptation until the Holy Spirit makes Jesus more satisfying than your own sin. I love the way Paul David Tripp said it as well. He said discipleship is really the inescapable war between the kingdom of self 
and the kingdom of God. And there is a tug of war between the two. So what we find ourselves is in Romans 6.12 when he says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you would obey it in its lust. Therefore, you and I, when we really say, I am a born-again Christian, out of the same mouth, we are saying with our life, and because I have been saved by Jesus, I am following him as his disciple. Right? That's it. And we do this based upon the fact that we have come to the understanding that the word of God is supreme. And we submit to scripture. And by doing so our aim is to look more like Christ. And become more like him. Because out of adoration we love him. And we want to serve him. But we recognize from the heart that we give him this love. We've got to have avoidance in our life. Of saying the more I want to taste the things of God. I'm going to lose appetite for the things and the taste of sin. I desire that. And when that begins to happen, we find ourselves living in such a way that, praise God, we don't want the things that used to hold us captive and bonds. And, 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 and we were not free. I mean, is it, is it, isn't it true today that there's great joy in the house of God to be free in the powerful name of Jesus? And to be saved and redeemed and bought and to know that, man... The life of a hell-bound direction has been changed and turned around. So you're living for the Christ. And therefore, your joy is real. In fact, you'll notice in your Bible as well that he says, Hey, Timothy, the goal of this instruction, the aim, is love that comes from a pure heart. And did you notice this? He said, a good conscience. This, my friends, would be what we could identify as the practice of agreement. And here's why I say agreement. When we learn the practice of agreement, our spirit bears witness with heaven itself, bringing us into alignment with the will of God. We learn to live joyfully free within God's boundary rather than to fight against it. See, what happened to Adam and Eve is that we know what happened and we know it was a disaster in the garden with sin. But what we go back to remember before sin hit was God making the statement, you are free in Genesis 2, you are free to eat of the trees of the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Christ, as we see as he sets us free in our Christian life, it's the same principle. It's the reality that you and I share when we say, you know what? Living for Christ, submitting to his word, aiming to become like him, adoring him with all of our heart, giving him the love from a pure heart, avoiding the things of sin so we may live in the things of righteousness in Christ and walk in that. What happens is that we end up living a life in which our conscience is not beating us up. We're not perfect. We're not sinless. But we are free. And we tasted of this freedom. And therefore we know the joy of this. So your life and my life doesn't become a bunch of rules and regulations where we are having to say, man, why is all that stuff not allowed? Why do I have to stay on this side of the fence? Instead of saying, look what God's keeping from me. You and I end up saying, look.
look at all that God's given me to enjoy. And you find contentment in purity and holiness. You find great delight in the things that please Christ. You've learned to have fun in a whole different kingdom way. And you've learned to live joyfully in those bounds and say, thank God I've been set free. Thank God the world's behind me. Thank God the cross is before me. And that I can magnify the name by which I have been called. The name that I am saved by. The practice of agreement is when you and I begin to live in such a way that that's what happens in the depth of our soul. Our conscience is just bearing witness of these things. And man, it's so good to know Christ in that manner and to be free by his glorious name. It leads to, hey Timothy, the goal of our instruction is going to be love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience. And Timothy, you need some sincere faith. The word sincere is the word unhypocritical in the language. It basically means, Paul is saying, Timothy, you're living in such a way that you're not putting on a show. You're not putting on a mask, minus COVID-19, FYI. You're not putting on any of these things like that. Timothy, you're not acting. You're not pretending. You're simply living out the overflow of what the Spirit of God is doing in you. And that is why this is sincere faith. Unhypocritical. It's real. It's authentic. The practice of authenticity means our imitation of Jesus becomes even greater than just our information of Jesus. We are not just going to sit back and just say, here is all you need to know about Christ. We're not going to point to where to find it as much as we're going to say, I'm imitating Christ by the grace of God. What you see in my life is not because of anything I can do in flesh. It's because if anything good dwells in me, it's going to be by the Spirit of God and for the glory of His name. It's not going to be anything we can do because we humble ourselves in His presence. What you and I recognize is that authenticity looks like that in such a powerful, powerful way. Before you know it, our life is living out the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's living out in such a way that you and I begin to realize that, man, before I got saved, I was living for myself and I was my own authority. I wasn't listening to anything except doing what I wanted to do. Building my life, my own kingdom for my own agenda. And then the cross intercepted my life. The blood of Christ transformed, shook me up, convicted me. I was convicted and then we turned to Christ. And when you got saved, all that burning fire within you, that joy of salvation, what do you do with it? We transform it and channel it into discipleship. Before you know it, we find ourselves now under the authority of the Word of God, soaking it in, taking it in, transforming, being wild. By, did you know this? Did you see this? We begin amazed at Scripture. We get into the Word, and then the Word gets into us. And all of a sudden, our aim is changing. Before we were focused on a career, before we just wanted that relationship, that boyfriend, girlfriend, before we had these agendas with finances, and then all of a sudden now, the kingdom of God has wrecked our heart. 
And now we find ourselves saying, whoa, put the brakes on, time out. My life is not my own. Now I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just my Savior. He is my Lord. He calls the shots. I take my counsel from Him. Under the Word of God, the bullseye is aimed. You are loving Him and serving Him because you adore Him. And you and I find ourselves wanting to taste the things of God more than we do the things of sin. And we're growing in that. And we start to realize our soul is in good conscience before God because we're walking freely in the boundary of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Amen? I know we're excited about that, right? Amen? It's joyful to know Him in that way. And then before you know it, you are living out an authentic representation of what the Spirit of God looks like inside of a man or woman, boy or girl. Living free under His direction, under His counsel, under His joy, under everything that He has to offer. And you find yourself going, why did I ever want to live my life in waste compared to what I have now in Christ? What was gained to me, I count it loss for the sake of Christ. Go with me to England in the 1940s. And you'll find a true story of a guy by the name of Professor Orr. Who took five of his theology students on a little field trip. And when he took them on this field trip, he had just got done teaching through multiple lectures of the Protestant Reformation. He showed back in the 1700s plus or minus era of what God was doing from the Church of England and to bring Christianity and to advance Christianity into the area of England. He began to identify the different reformers or leaders of that Reformation and show and teach and show and tell what all they did. One of them was a man by the name of John Wesley. John Wesley was a guy that God used in a great way during the era to bring about a spiritual awakening to the area of England and beyond. And many, many people, through prayer, were brought to the gospel. He came to know Christ during that time. God used John Wesley greatly. One of the stops on the field trip that day was actually to the house of John Wesley. But ironically, when Wesley passed away, they actually seized his house and they decided to set it up frozen in time from the 1700s to be an example to everyone whom he inspired. They got into the house of John Wesley and the students were going into the rooms. They came to his study room and on the desk were the actual notes that John Wesley had been writing before he passed. Frozen there. Books spread around. The students are like kids in a candy store going and looking at John Wesley's notes, his books, maybe a fingerprint. And then all of a sudden, Professor Orr says, let's move on. They went to some other rooms until they finally came to Wesley's bedroom. And they came to his bedroom and it looked like any other room until Professor Orr explained that this was also where the prayer closet happened for John Wesley. This was his prayer room. And one of the students happened to notice alongside the bed there were 
two impressions into the carpet and the floor in that area. And when they looked at the impressions, Professor Orr explained. He said, guys, because this was Wesley's prayer room, the two impressions you see is that this is where Wesley prayed. And he didn't pray just to pray. He prayed to talk to God and believe God for hours upon hours of dialogue to bring about great revival and reformation and change and to reach this part of the world with the gospel. He prayed for awakening and revival. And the impressions you see on the floor, that's because he wore the floor out in prayer. In fact, go with me for this moment since it's frozen in time. Look on your screen. This is a picture of the actual bed and bedroom. And right there along the side, though you can't see the floor, that was the common place where Wesley would kneel in prayer. And those walls, if they could talk, man, what you can learn. He cried out to God, and in the spiritual awakening of that part of England in that time, many things God did in answer to prayer out of that room. It would be that the young men would be heading back to the bus. Professor Orr would get them seated. He would do a head count before they went to the next house. And then he noticed one of the students was missing. He said, guys, hang on. He looked outside the bus. He wasn't there. He walked into the house. First room, not there. Second room, not there. He goes further and further through the house, and he can't find the student. He goes to one more spot. The bedroom of John Wesley. And when he opened this door, he looked and he noticed the shoulders and the head of the young man praying. And when he did, he heard him crying out these words. Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again in me. Revive me. Revive us. God, bring awakening like you did in days of old. Professor Orr would walk over to the young man and say, Son, it's time to go. And rising up, Billy Graham would stand up and he'd walk out with Professor Orr. And then for the next 58 years of crusades and millions hearing the gospel, God did it again. Let me tell you something. If we go back to the early church, in this time of invitation. It's time to think. If we go back to the time of the early church, here's what we find. We find that the norm for anybody who said, I'm a Christian, the norm, not the exception, was this right here. To believe in Jesus meant to be a disciple. It wasn't to believe in Jesus and just be a church member. To believe in Jesus and just go to a Sunday school or a small group. To believe in Jesus meant I'm taking everything that Christ said and I'm letting it completely ransack my heart and mind to where I become the imitation to this world as much as I can of Jesus. The disciples filled the early church. I just wonder in this room if there would be a one of us that would be willing to humble ourselves and just cry out to the living God and say, God, I don't want to play. I don't want to put on a show. 
I don't want to pretend like it's not there. I don't want to be casual in my Christian life. I want to be full of the holy fire of God and sold out for the kingdom. And Lord, the disciples that filled the early church, Lord, do it again. Do it again right now. Do it again at Gospel Life. Let it be. God, have your fingerprint on us. And it just takes one of us and more just to say, Lord, do it again. Father, this is your invitation. This is a time to reply to how the Holy Spirit has been speaking to our hearts. And this response belongs to you. To your name be the glory. May you recruit this morning whomever you may be drawing a disciple that says I'm glad to be a Christian but I'm ready to be a disciple I count the cost I deny myself and I follow after the risen Lord Jesus Lord Jesus do it again what you did in the early church fill gospel light with disciples that are undeniably living you and you alone. Do it again, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand at this time. God's